Welcome to the Discover Uncover podcast series. I'm Todd Slisher, the Executive Director of the Sloan Museum of Discovery and Longway Planetarium in Flint, Michigan. Our mission is to engage communities on a learning journey in history and science. Sloan Museum is the caretaker of nearly 50,000 artifacts in the Flint region's fascinating past. Curator of collections, Jeff Whitcox, and our community engagement coordinator, Jerome Threlkeld, will take you on a journey back in time using the historical artifacts from our collection as a jumping off point. We hope you come away with a deeper sense of Michigan's history and how the objects and stories of the past relate to today's culture, customs, and society. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the Discover Uncover podcast series. Hello, and welcome to the first Discover Uncover podcast of the Sloan Museum of Discovery right here in the great city of Flint, Michigan. Hey, I know we've been famous for so many things, automobiles, water crises, so many other stuff. But guess what? We are a thriving community full of wonderful people, and we are all about our arts, our culture, education, and everything else. And so today, we hope that you would enjoy this podcast. I am your host, Jerome Threlkill, the Community Engagement Coordinator here, and I'm just excited to be here with a phenomenal person in the name of Jeffrey Wilcox. Uh, Jeff serves as our curator of collections, and he is going to take us through a lot. Jeff, what's up, man? How are you? Hey, I'm doing great, Jerome. You know, this is really exciting. Our plan is to take listeners and viewers on a journey back in time through our collection. You know, we have over uh, nearly 50,000 artifacts in the collection. Wait and a minute, 50,000? 50,000. And, you know, a pretty extensive archive runs all the way back to the 1820s, all the way up to present day. So, you know, we want to use our history gallery as sort of a vehicle to tell some stories from our collection and dive a little bit deeper than you might on your average museum visit. Well, that's exciting. I hope you're ready. Before we get started, though, Jeff, I want to know more about you. How did you get here? You know, I actually got here in kind of a roundabout way. Um, I started working at Mackinac State Historic Parks when I was in college, all the way back in 2005, which is longer ago than I am willing to admit. Um, you know, and I went there because I did not want to go home and work at Dairy Queen for the summer. And um, it ended up turning into a job because, of course, uh, they run a historic site up on Mackinac Island. No, hold on. Dairy Queen is one of my favorite places now. Is that a slight diss or you just didn't want to do that? Well, you know, when you go home smelling like stale soft serve every single day, it uh, kind of loses its magic. You know? <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, from Dairy Queen, it just kind of turned into a career. I realized I wanted to work in museums and, you know, nearly 20 years later, here I am at Sloan. Well, we are glad that you are here. I am a lifelong resident of this community, and I'm just so excited about the things that you're doing and how you're preserving our history and making it more inclusive and doing so many wonderful things. And so if you don't mind, we'll get right into our topic for today. And can you share with our audience, what are we, what are we talking about today? So uh, what we're going to be talking about is the Flint Beecher tornado. Um, so. Uh. This happens in 1953. It's by far one of the biggest natural disasters to ever hit Flint. You know, a very big story in uh, our fairly recent past, actually. Yeah, I heard it's the largest tornado in the state. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, one of the largest tornadoes in the state of Michigan, one of the only, what's called an EF5, which is the strongest grade of tornado. And it was the last tornado in U.S. history to kill over 100 people until 2011, 
Whoa. when we had a very strong tornado hit Joplin, Missouri. So yeah. uh, this is an extremely significant event in local history. That's awesome. I've heard so many stories um, from residents who, who remember the tornado and then even those who moved into the neighborhood afterwards. But I think this is also the 70th year that we're commemorating this event. Is that true? Uh, yeah, that's correct. June 8th, 1953 is the date of the tornado. So this is the 70th anniversary. Wow. Well, let's get ready to go deeper here. You know, we're standing in front of the, a display here in our wonderful new history gallery that is talking about it. And so we have some artifacts here on our wall and that people can come and engage with. But this whole discover uncover means we can go beyond mm -hmm. what is here. So take us, take us deep. Let's go deeper. Let's do a deeper dive. All right. Uh, so, you know, the, the tornado actually happens on June 8th of 1953 and kind of what everybody's saying from that day when you hear accounts from survivors is it was very hot and muggy uh, the okay. entire day. And people knew that a storm was probably going to happen. In fact, like the Flint Journal is saying it on, you know, their headlines, we're expecting strong winds and thunderstorms tonight. But, you know, the 1950s is a very different time as far as weather prediction. You know, today we all have these apps that tell us everything that's happening. We can see when storms are coming on weather radar, but we didn't have any of those things back in the 1950s. You know, meteorological technology was very primitive compared with today. We didn't even have weather radar in the state of Michigan until 1957. What? So people didn't really know uh, what was going to happen. You know, the weather service is saying at about 7.30 p.m. that night, the tornado strikes at 8.30. We're expecting severe thunderstorms in the area, this broad swath of Michigan and Ontario, but that's, that's really all the information they had. And people didn't know this was coming until it was right on top of them. Wow. Wow. I don't know what I would have done. That had to be completely scary. I mean, it had to be scary. I, I mean, one thing that's really interesting about this event is we actually have a lot of first-person accounts of what the tornado was actually like. I mean, the Flint Journal uh, was going out right after the disaster, interviewing people, and they're actually following people throughout the recovery as well. So it's really interesting to have uh, the amount of documentation that we do from this event. And one of the things that we have in our archive is these compositions that were written by high school age kids. They seem to be about 14 or 15 from what I can tell from the U.S. Census and they were kind of talking about what was their experience. A lot of them lived either near the uh, damage path or were directly in it. Yeah, because I, the tornado blew up their school, right? It decimated their school. Yeah, so Beecher High School was in that area and yeah, it completely obliterated that building. It blew out several walls, blew out all the windows. They lost thousands of books from their library as well. So, you know, I, there were, I think, 340 houses that were destroyed, over 100 that received, you know, catastrophic damage as well. So a lot of property damage and a lot of loss of life. Wow. I, I can just recall having tornado warnings, you know, and hearing it and everyone taking shelter and all. I remember we had one this past summer and, mm -hmm. you know, I was in the basement, I had the dog with me. We were in the closet, buried down. So I couldn't even imagine not having the warning system to, to help me be prepared to go to the basement, to get in a, mm -hmm. you know, a room with no windows. And so that had to be very catastrophic and traumatic for those who lived through it. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, most of the people who were interviewed by the Flint Journal, they're saying that, oh, we were watching TV or we're eating dinner or something like that, and they didn't have any kind of warning that anything was coming. There's one man who says he was watching TV, and one of the universal things that you have people say is they heard the sound of the tornado, which sounded like, you know, just a freight train 
uh, rolling toward them. And next thing he knows, he goes to the front door, opens it up to see what's going on, and he gets blown three blocks away. I know there were a few other accounts of people saying they, they were running out of their homes up the street trying to get away from it as well. Mm -hmm. Is that true? It is true. There's accounts of people saying they exited their house or they exited their vehicle and ran down the street. I think, honestly, part of that is just a panic reaction. You have this thing coming towards you, you don't know what to do. Yeah. You know? It's flight. Yeah. Uh-huh. Trying to get out of there. So, Jeff, you talked about having accounts from some of the young people and the teenagers. Would you mind reading one of those for us? Mm -hmm. Just... I, w I would love to hear it. Absolutely. So uh, this particular one was written by James Stratton, uh, seemingly the name. Handwriting is kind of hard to read. But uh, yeah, these were written by high school students as like a school composition or a school assignment. And, you know, this kid, he describes what it was like to actually get hit by the tornado. And so he says, just then my dad yelled, here she comes, head to the basement. I got a glimpse at it and it looked like a black monster. It looked like it was coming right toward us. There's one thing I'll never forget and that's the noise. It sounded like jet planes and freight engines all together. So, I mean, you just imagine that coming out of nowhere at 8.30 p.m., which at that time it was just after dark. After um, dinner, sitting watching television or playing a game or whatever. Mm -hmm. Hey, here she comes. Get to the basement. <laughs> and that's all the warning you got. Mm. What, what else do you have here for us to, to go deeper into this story? So this particular account was written by Paul Wilson. And uh, he was actually at a drive-in on the north end. And he says, um, I was standing by the south fence of the North Flint drive-in watching the show. Then all of a sudden it started raining. At the third crack of lightning, I heard a rumbling like a thousand freight trains. We started running east until we came to North Saginaw Street. And then he talks about, you know, turning right, running a bit further down the street, and then throwing his friend in the ditch and falling on his face. Uh, then I looked up and saw that it was a tornado. After it had passed, we got up and then it started hailing and almost knocked us down. And just imagine going through something like this when at the time they would have been 14 or 15 years old and just how scary that would be. It had to be. Yeah, I'm mm -hmm. scared just listening to it. It's yeah. like I couldn't even imagine being in a drive-in and a tornado coming. Wow. Mm -hmm. and so how many people again, you said? Uh, so there were about 116 people killed and about 844 injuries as part of this event. So, you know, certainly the lack of warning played into that. But also what plays into it is the path that the tornado took. So it started west of Flint and pretty much went down uh, Coldwater Road. And the hardest hit area is Kurtz Avenue, which is, you know, still there today, just off of Coldwater. Yeah. And that's where the heaviest damage was. So, you know, a lot of the, the tornado's path was rural, but then it punches right through this high population area in the city of Flint, and that's where it does the most damage. Wow, that is something. Have you ever lived through a tornado warning or been a part of a tornado? You know, we would love to hear, you know, your accounts or anything of that nature as we move forward. But, but Jeff, let's, let's go into some other artifacts that you might have. Ah, for sure. So, you know, after the tornado, there was, you know, immediate response. And it's really kind of amazing how the city of Flint and Genesee County came together after this event. So there's this organization called the Red Feather Fund. It was organized in 1922, and uh, eventually it became the United Way of Genesee County. And 
they started a disaster relief fund, and this was funded in part by General Motors, a few other corporate funders, uh, but then it was also funded by uh, paycheck deductions from mm -hmm. people in the city of Flint, and they raised about $939,000, which is the equivalent today of about $10 million. Wow. Uh, so you just imagine people, most of this is coming from people's paychecks, mm -hmm. and that's how much we as a community are able to raise. Yeah, that's amazing. I actually um, used to work at United Way for a, a while, and so the, the things that they, they do and how they're able to get people to come together around a cause like this is, is phenomenal. And to know Red Feather was doing that even back in 1953, uh -huh. wow. Our community has always come together for during tragedies or times where we really had to do that. And so it's amazing to know that even back then that they were doing that. $10 million equivalent, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, yeah. you know, especially in a working class town uh, like Flint was. You know, people were able to apply for relief for any kind of damages that the insurance wasn't covering, whether it, the insurance was just, you know, covering part of the, the recovery of the house or whatever else. And one of the things I brought out is an application from uh, Claudia and Owen Butler, and they lived at 1034 East Kurtz Avenue, so where the worst of the damage was right happening. Yeah. And what's really interesting about these applications, I mean, we have dozens, I'm pretty sure we have every single one that came to the Red Feather Fund. And you're able to see, number one, you know, just how much of these things cost in the mm -hmm. 1950s, which was interesting. Uh, but you're also able to get a glimpse into people's livelihoods and what they were doing with their lives. This particular man, Owen Butler, he says that he used to work at General Motors, in the 1940s, at some point, he had a brain tumor, got operated on, had to stop working. And so um, he had all of this um, woodworking equipment and things in his house where he was trying to make a living, you know, around the house, um, basically working from home, um, yeah. trying to pay the bills. And so, you know, you're seeing that in there as well. Um, so it's really interesting to get those personal stories as we dive in. And that's really the fascinating thing I think about our archive is you have uh, these papers that really reveal a lot of personal details about people and it really brings a human story to something. This one was really interesting, especially because we actually have a photo of his house being rebuilt uh, from the Flint Journal archive, really? uh, which is also in our organization. It's, so. Is the house still standing? It is actually still standing, yeah. What? I went and found it on Google Maps. And okay. Yeah, it's there on Google Street View today. Still looks pretty much the same. I mean, that in itself is an artifact. Uh -huh. The fact that you found it and it's still there and goes right with the story of Mr. Owen, that is, that's phenomenal. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I mean, it's illustrative of another way that our community came together after this, and uh, that was with Operation Tornado. Are you familiar with that? No, tell me more about what's Operation Tornado. So it started in August of 1953, so about three months after the tornado struck. And it was this organized, basically, building drive uh, where 78 people from our community came together and they went up to the affected area and they rebuilt people's houses. So all that the people had to do was provide the materials and the blueprints and the volunteers would come and do the rest. Now, I'm sure the results were a little mixed because not everybody who's doing this has any kind of building skills necessarily. Okay. But the fact that many of these houses are still standing is probably testament to how it means well the they work did was something done. right. Yeah. <laughs> they may not have had all the skills, but they, they followed someone's instructions, I'm sure. 
Uh -huh. That is amazing. Um, if anyone would like to build me a new house with just me buying the materials, hey, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Operation Jerome Tornado. <laughs> Can I get in on that too? Because that might be a good deal. <laughs> that would be a great deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, like, how much did that cost? Like, how much would something like that cost? Well, um, you know, the, the butlers say that their total loss was about $5,500. They lost their whole house in $5,500. That shows mm -hmm. you just how things, uh, inflation has just changed over the decades. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, Beecher seems like a pretty cool community that got a chance to revitalize themselves. But what are some other, do you have any other artifacts from, from that area? Uh, so this is it for artifacts, um, but you know I think that this gives us a lot of things that we can talk about from the experiences that people had to the way our community came together in the aftermath of it. I mean another part of this response was actually on the night of the disaster. So uh, you can imagine it's just a quiet night, a quiet Monday night in June. A lot of the hospitals are quiet, slowing mm -hmm. down at this time. I mean the tornado happened at 8.30 p.m. And all of a sudden, they're deluged with nearly a thousand people who are needing treatment. You know, we hear about a lot about Hurley Medical Center, of course, yes. still here today, mm -hmm. um, not too far from the museum, actually. Um, they treated about 500 people that night, including uh, over 300 who needed to be admitted to the hospital. But the coolest thing is about uh, 11 o'clock or so, 11 p.m., uh, the superintendent of the hospital put a call out for people to come donate blood, and 650 people showed up. And they collected hundreds of pints of blood um, to help the victims. So again, it's another way that our community's coming together. Uh, a question that I would have for our audience, I think, is, you know, do you live in the, in the area where the damage was happening as part of the tornado? Either Kurtz Avenue, Coldwater Road, any of those areas, um, there's a good chance that you're living in a house that was rebuilt as part of Operation Tornado. Uh, so, you know, if that's if that's your home, I would encourage you to reach out. I'd be interested to hear, you know, what your house is like. Yeah, and I would go deeper. You said that was the artifacts that you have. If you lived in that area during that time or you were around at that time and you have any <clears throat> recollection of what was happening during that time, and we may be interested in hearing your story as well, or if you have any artifacts, we'd be interested in, in sending it through the process to be a part of our collection. Mm -hmm. Jeff, this has been amazing. I feel like I know so much more about this tornado and about this community um, and how we come together to support one another. And I uh, wanted to thank you for, for all, all that you do in our community and really helping to utilize these artifacts to tie it to human life into our humanity and what we're able to do as a community. One thing I would want to say, I think, to our audience is with the Beecher Tornado, we don't really have that many artifacts. And it was a recent enough event that there are people, still people in our community who survived. And if you have any stories, if you have any artifacts related to this event, uh, we encourage you to reach out. You know, this is about not just collecting the actual item, but about collecting and preserving your story um, for perpetuity. Well, thank you, Jeff. Before we wrap up this first edition of Discover and Uncover, I want to let everyone know that we have a special telephone number that you can call and also a, um, a email address where you can email us. And when we want to, you have a burning question or if you're one of those people that have an artifact or a story to tell about the Beecher Tornado, we would love to 
have you call us or send us an email so that we can address it. Maybe even on our next session, we'll go through and, and start with that before we move to our next artifact. And that number is 810-237-3417. I'll say it again, 810-237-3417. And that email address is podcast at sloanlongway.org. Again, podcast at sloanlongway.org. Um, if you are curious to come and see the brand new history gallery here at Sloan Museum of Discovery in the great city of Flint, Michigan, I invite you to come. This is a beautiful space of inclusive narratives um, of people in this community about how we've band together in crises, how we um, really come together to overcome you know, so many obstacles and challenges, but also how we celebrate one another. So I invite you, come and be our personal guest um, here at the Sloan Museum of Discovery in the great city of Flint, Michigan. Have a great day. <laughs>